Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 305, Karen and Patrick Weeks, Video Games, Part 2. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. And Christy Cherish. And this week we are joined by the BioWare writer and editor team of Patrick and Karen Weeks for part two of our conversation about, well, not quite all things. Video, video games. Video games. Not yeah. <laughs> the I, I, had, I had to toss that in there. <laughs> um for part two of not quite all things video games, but certainly an engaging conversation about video games and some other guests that end up appearing in the show. And we're capping off the giveaway for the favorite character, but I think we're going to be introducing a new giveaway, too, before we get into our discussion. What was the idea we had for the new giveaway, Christy? It was surrounding our special guests that join us for this portion of the interview. It was, it was. So the special guest, if 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 you can, um, if you can ping the species of the special guest breed included, no, then, I was going to uh, ask you if you needed subgenre. Yeah, you need subgenre. You need subgenre. Um, and uh, I, I guess tweet it to us. And then what? What will the recipient of said excellent? Guess or excellent recognition of species and subgenre sub genre receive. That was hard for me. I need to bite my words right there. What what will they receive? So they're they're receiving some awesome stuff, um, courtesy of uh, the Weeks and um, Forty Seven North, uh, Patrick's publisher. They're getting a set of Rogues of the Republic, so both novels in Patrick's series, uh, The Prophecy Con and The Palace Job. I read them both. I highly recommend them. And as well as Masked Empire, which also by Patrick, is a Dragon Age novel. So it's written in that series. Excellent. And I guess that one's going to be signed. Ooh. Yes. Even better. Yeah. Little. So they're, they're getting all three books. A true memento. That's, that's awesome. So if you're a fan of the week's, Again, tweet to us, and we'll prompt you via Twitter, tweet to us the special guest species and subgenre that joined us for Weeks Part 2. I think they may have even made an appearance in Weeks Part 1. So if you no, just they might have. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, probably, it's probably a good guess that they did. So tweet that to us, and we'll enter you in the giveaway. And this one also is North America only, correct? That's correct. Okay, so North America only, but tweet us, species, subgenre, you'll be entered. Before we get into the interview, you and I have two topics. We'll stay a little, hopefully, briefer than I think we did last time. Two topics, the first of which is you want to talk about Kindle Unlimited. And I absolutely want to talk about <laughs> Kindle Unlimited, yes. And some term agreement changes that were made. And the other thing we want to do is address some feedback that we've received over the last couple episodes, but specifically our last episode around the Irene Gallo conversation. So let's start with Kindle Unlimited and the term changes and, and help help frame the discussion. So 
Kindle Unlimited, if you, if you aren't aware of it, it's basically a subscription service that Amazon runs. So it's for eBooks. So you can, I think up here in Canada, at least we pay about 10 bucks a month and, um, it keeps tempting me, but, um, and you're able to take out and download as many books as are in the Kindle Unlimited library. And it's, you get published works, so authors you might recognize, authors you might um, you might already read, and you also get self-published authors in there. So it used to be that if you were um, if you were a self-published author and you had your work up on there, you got paid every time your book got downloaded. And the way it works is it's basically a pool, a pool of money from the subscriptions. And let's arbitrarily say that you're going to get um, the pool breaks down to a buck twenty. Uh, you get every time somebody downloads your book and reads past a certain point. So I think it was roughly around 10%. And there were a couple of things that happened. A, that's great. You know, So if you have, uh, the example I used before was if you've got um, 100 people download your book and read it, you're going to get hundred and uh, you know 120 bucks that particular month, which is fantastic. So if you're a smart self-publishing author and you know you've got people reading your stuff every month. The best possible business move you could make is to take your novel that a hundred people are reading in that month and break it into five or six parts because that way you can get paid six times instead of just the one time. If, if you know, if, if a hundred people are going to download that entire novel, well then they're going to download six different parts or to put up a, a series of short stories. So instead of getting $120, you're going to get 600 or close to $700 odd dollars. I don't have my calculator in front of me. So one of the things that came up about this is that I guess Amazon felt that, you know, wait a minute, we don't want to encourage people to cut up their novels into these small chapters. You know, we want to encourage longer, um, longer novels and make sure that they're getting, they're getting compensated, they're getting rightly compensated versus, versus a short, short story. So in short, what happened is, is that Amazon decided to change their terms of use where Kindle Unlimited and self-published authors are, um, you know, are involved. So what they did was they said, all right, instead of just reading, you know, um, instead of just if they read past that first 10%, we're not going to pay you $1.20 per download anymore. We're going to pay you a certain amount of money per page that is read by, you know, whoever downloads your book. So if you're piece of work, if, if your work is 10 pages, you're only going to get paid for those 10 pages. If it's a hundred pages or a thousand pages, then you're going to get, and somebody reads all of those pages, you're going to get paid for that. So, you know, some people, you know, you can argue and Amazon, I guess, seems to feel that it is a more fair way to compensate authors and to encourage longer pieces of novel, longer works. But the thing that fascinates me and the thing that you know, I, I've just been sort of watching is the fact that Amazon did this overnight. So one day you're getting as, you know, self-published author, you're getting about 20 per download. The next day you're getting paid per page. The self-published authors had no say in this whatsoever. The only person who got a chance to decide this was Amazon. So, so first off, that's, that I think is fascinating. But for me, it wraps back to the John Scalzi deal that was made with Tor a few a few weeks back for three point four million dollars, where a lot of people online, and you know, we got feedback from listeners too, that he would have been better off, you know, and there was some sentiment online that he would have been better off 
if he had have self-published instead of traditionally published. And the thing is, is that that could be true. He might have gotten more money, but it hinges on Amazon having stable practices where with how it does business with self-published authors. And this, the Kindle Unlimited thing, I think is really important in that kind of a discussion because it shows that it's could change you know, on a dime or overnight because they've already done it. Yeah, and I, I have two thoughts on this, and I'm not as well-versed on the discussion from, from this point of view. I, I know there's been a lot that's been said about the agreement in terms, in terms of use, but I've been more interested in reading entertaining works and probably avoiding this avoiding the discussion <laughs> of, of late to be honest with you and just keeping our head and keeping our head above water in our respective professions but a couple thoughts on this specific to the business end of it and what this reminds me of unfortunately is a lot of what's happening out in social media today uh, and it's akin very much to Facebook where you actually have a lot of marketing experts espousing moving away from platforms like Facebook, because even recently, and I think you and I've seen this with the, on our Facebook page, the impressions that are taking place there. If you're a business entity or a quasi business entity, Facebook is now beholden to stockholders. And because they're beholden to stockholders, if you're a quasi business agency or a business entity, they want you to start paying them. They want you to sponsor your posts, and even if it's nickel and diming, I mean, even if it's a $5 per post placement, they're making revenue off of those posts if the post looks, and, and they start, her, their algorithms actually look at posts that look like they're promotional, mm -hmm. and they don't allow those in individuals' news feeds as readily as they would something that looks like a true person-to-person -person interaction. So you you of late have been playing around on our Facebook page, obviously, and putting things that are a little bit more fun, in some cases cartoons that speak to the industry or thought-provoking blog pieces that are mo more news-oriented, or I would say more similar to person-to-person -person interaction, and those automatically are doing better. And we have seen things that have traditionally done well that have been around our shows even. Yeah. And they're not doing as well. And that has everything to do with the way Facebook's adjusting their rules. And they change their terms all the time. And from a marketing standpoint, you have a lot of marketing experts now coming out and saying, stop using least space. And Facebook is least space. You need to find ways to market your product that are in non-leased or consignment areas. And essentially, you think about Amazon, it's a consignment shop. Yeah. What's unfortunate about what's happening, though, is if you were running said consignment shop and I were one of your partners that often placed product in your consignment shop, and you summarily changed your terms, you more than likely would communicate that to me. 
Yes. And I think what's fascinating, you know, in the conversation that you and I've had about this is that there was no communication whatsoever. And that's the super unfortunate part. That's the real unfortunate part about this is Amazon doesn't, what this tells me is Amazon on some level potentially doesn't really care about their partners. Now, you'd have some of the publishing industry folks go, well, what do you mean potentially? They don't. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, from a self-publishing standpoint, these self-publishers, it, it's looking like they really don't care about those partners on some level. And, you know, but I think, too, that it's, there are probably, and I remember this when Kindle Unlimited first came out, that if you were a relatively unknown self-published author, you got a different deal than somebody who was, say, well-known or a bestseller, because those business partners were were more valued, would be my guess by Amazon, just because of the sheer amount of product that they, they moved through their as you put it, consignment shop. So I, I think there are tiers, but I, I think that kind of stuff is now coming out. Like with Kindle Unlimited, my bet is is that traditionally published works that are on Kindle Unlimited probably have a very different deal, and this probably isn't affecting them at all because the publishers would have worked out the leasing agreement between those works and Amazon, and that would have been different you know, from this idea of whether or not it's 10% or by page that you're getting paid, which is how the self-published authors are getting dealt with. So, mm -hmm. so you're getting different, you, you've got different levels already, even between the self-published authors, I think. Yeah. And this is me speaking from a, a point of ignorance too, because you're, you're much better versed on and been following this more closely. But as you were speaking to, and as you were kind of outlining and framing the discussion around how authors were presenting their work, and I was just beating on Amazon a moment ago. Yeah. The, the other thought I was having as you were walking through that is Amazon certainly could probably make the argument that the consumer or user experience was probably not the best in the yeah. unlimited environment if I have. So I'm going to, let me just think of a word, the Peter Aurelian book that just came out that I'm reading. And it's, you know, an 800 page tome. It's a nice book. Well, if I have that scattered all over my Kindle reader and, you know, in 20 different sections, I'm probably not going to be very pleased as a consumer. So I'm sure on some level, or I'm thinking Amazon certainly could make the argument that there had to be a consumer play there too. And I, I think that's, I actually think it's a valid concern because it's, it's you know, I understand, I, I can totally see both sides because if you're smart, um, if you're self-publishing and you've got a readership and it's not costing your reader any more money, it's costing Amazon more money, then why not? You know, it's a, it's a great, great way to, people like to call it gaming the system. It's not. It's using the system to your best possible advantage. But no, I, I agree too from Amazon's perspective and its customers, which are the Kindle Unlimited subscribers. I, I can totally see that being a valid complaint. It's like all, all I'm getting are short stories or all I'm getting are these um, small excerpts of books. I'd, I'd rather have big, the full work in front of me. Why is it spread out so much? You know, I, I could totally understand that too. And I, I think it's valid. Yeah, and I, I had just, the irony being, I had just signed up for the service in the last, oh, the last two weeks because my, my daughter's starting a Battle of the Books program and I think she has to read about 20 titles. Mm -hmm. And I think we found that a good percentage of those titles, because most of them are class, you know, most of them are classics. Yeah. Um, that 
I was like, well, for several months, sure, this would definitely be worth it. I mean, these are classics, We some of which, after my daughter's finished reading them, you know, I probably wouldn't have around the house again until grandchildren are here. And at that point, we'll have a whole completely different reading experience. I'll have holograms acting out Ribsy, the book by Beverly. I think that's by <laughs> Beverly Cleary. So I, I'll have that acted out in a hologram for my grandchildren. So I, I don't really need to own the book. <laughs> own the books, um, but allow my daughter to get through them pretty quickly. A anything else you wanted to touch on on the on the topic of, of Kindle Unlimited? It'll be interesting. There is a lot that's being said out there, I know, in the on the interwebs about about this subject. Yeah. I no, but besides the fact that I'm I'm kinda I'm almost in the same boat as you. So I, I don't know how Kindle Unlimited advertises in the US, but the way it does it up here is they're sneaky and they're smart. So every time I go to buy an ebook I get this comparison underneath, oh, yeah. which is you could spend $15 on this ebook or $11 on this ebook, but it's also in Kindle Unlimited, which you only have to pay $10 for. So isn't that so much of a better deal? Or that it doesn't say that, but that's what they're insinuating. Oh, yeah. I, I, keep, I keep resisting, but we'll, we'll see how many more times that happens to me it, to see if it would actually be you know worthwhile. But And that was the hook in the cheek for me. Yeah. yeah, because like I said, there was a book, it was a classic and we were going to download it and I think it was four ninety nine. and then Kindle Unlimited, the first couple weeks or month is free and then after that I pay nine ninety nine, and I'm sitting here looking at the volume of works that my daughter has to read over, you know, like a three month period mm -hmm. and so I went, okay, this is easy. <laughs> this is an easy decision. So we went ahead and we, we've got the trial anyway. So I, we can report back. I'll let you know how that experience goes. Please do. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, we'll be paying a couple authors, although I'm sure several of those, being that they're classics, they're going to go to the estate, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, no, so. exactly. Well, speaking of feedback and, and hearing some things, we heard from some listeners both on the blog and via Twitter this week around our Irene Gallo conversation last week. And, and, and I'm going to start the conversation this way, and then we'll actually get into the root of what was, uh, was discussed, was you're in my intent last week and really talking about the Irene Gallo situation was really looking at it from the point of view of Laura Ann Gilman's conversation around whether Irene's a company spokesperson or not. True. And, and yeah. we were really engaged in that conversation. Having said, and we really didn't broach whether we thought Irene was wrong, whether Tor was wrong, although we hit on the fringes of it a little bit. Having said that, though, we got some feedback from listeners around that we were missing the mark or had a bit of a gap in the discussion because we didn't discuss Tor's reaction and whether they should have handled uh, Irene's situation the same way they handled or didn't handle Jim Frankel's situation when he was let go based on uh, accusations uh, and a pattern of behavior of sexual harassment. I think that was a couple of years ago, and it was 2013 yeah. at WISCON. And there was a lot of public outcry at the time. And I know some love listeners kind of called us on that a little bit for not bringing it up. Yeah, and, and and to sort of get to your point too, we were aware of it. We decided not to go that particular route last week. But since we've had the requests, you know, one of the things I keep seeing on Twitter blogs, 
and, and the sentiment sort of on, on social media is that one of the one of the points that people are upset about with how Tor um, and Tom Doherty had wrote the letter, um, the, pub, the sort of public letter about Irene Gallo's post on um, and had it on the website and addressed it publicly was that they didn't feel that um, and people are saying it a few different ways, but they didn't feel that Tor was treating male and female employees in the same light. And they were treating Irene Gallo differently than say they treated James uh, Frankel. And one of the things people call out is the fact that back in 2013, um, uh, when Frankel was fired by Tor, there was no apology letter from, from Tor about his behavior at conventions and such. And um, I thought it would be interesting to discuss uh, and I, I'll, I'm actually going to link, I think, to um, Mary Robin at Cal's notes about this a few years back in because she discussed this topic quite a bit. So if you want to catch up on the James Frankel issue back back with Tor, then then, you know, look at that. But um, I think it would be interesting to discuss whether or not these two situations are really as similar as people are maybe making them out to be. Mm. And I'm I'm going to maybe make the slightly unpopular suggestion that they're too different to compare. And that's because first off, Franco was fired. So he, his, his employment was terminated uh, with Tor when these allegations came up. And, and that was a, that was an HR decision. But the other thing that I don't, and I, I'm thinking about it, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I'm thinking about it from a business perspective. And that's that I don't think any legal department on the face of the planet would allow a company to write a public letter in that similar kind of a PR case with Frankel, apologizing for any potential, you know, offense, um, you know, of, of one of their employees, because I, I think that's too close to admitting liability. And, and I, so I, I don't think it's possible. Whereas with Irene Gallo, it's, it's more of a minor misstep on social media where she said something and, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it's kind of a low thing that a company can actually say, well, you know, they, they can address that PR wise, but yeah. Yeah, and I, I think this is what's interesting about this. And I spoke about this last time around how publishing, it's unlike so many other industries from a business standpoint. It's a business, but it's unlike a lot of other businesses in the fact that fans can get as about as close as you possibly can to people that work in the business as just about any other industry or more so than any other industry that's out there. And as a result, you have a situation that occurred at a convention in this particular situation that was, I would say, semi-private. There were certainly other people that witnessed it. But if that were to happen in any other workplace, how that would have transpired would have been probably quite a bit more discreet in the fact that it would have been reported like you had said, it would have been an HR and a legal matter. They would have reviewed the situation, reviewed the facts. If they found just cause for termination, they would have terminated employment. It might have made a blip within a very small community, mm -hmm. and, that, and that would have been the end of the matter. But because we're looking at publishing, which is a very public business, it, you had blog posts from Mary Robinette Kowal. You had blog posts from, and you and I have talked about this, Brandon Sanderson rarely yeah. blogs about subjects that are political or controversial in nature, but he even blogged on this subject. So you've taken something that was a, I, and again, I don't want anybody to hear me. I'm taking this very matter-of-factly that if I were working for this corporation, how would I view this? And then now I'm kind of stepping outside of my typical day-to-day -day role 
and then thinking about how different is my day job from the publishing industry and what you and I witness. Yeah. And, and you have all of these very public personas speaking on something because of the tight-knit community that the genre community is, and they heard about this situation and then reacted. Yes. And they had the power of the pin to react. So in this particular case, I'm completely with you that, you know, you're typical matter of course is you don't issue an apo- you don't issue an apology because of legal and the human resources concerns. Yeah. And and your legal department won't let you. Yeah, they won't let you in a and, lot of cases. And like the they'll only- they'll actually they'll say no you can't respond to this. Like um at, at yeah. least in in um other public companies I've worked for, they their legal departments won't let you say anything. And they'll they'll blanket it and they'll say this can't be discussed anywhere on online and such and and so I I, I wonder if that sort of thing maybe goes on in, in with publishing as well because they certainly have legal departments. Sure, they have larger corporations they have to answer to as well. Even though you and I, you know, see them at a table at a convention and we might know the marketing guy by first name, or the, you know, or the editor yep. of a, a given line by first name, they answer to you know they answer to a corporation. Yep. I mean, this is big business. Yeah. So it, it, it's not to excuse, but it, it it helps, I guess, explain or to your point, separate the two incidents because yes. they are different in circumstances. And then the other thing about it too, where I. I find interesting about this is you have two you have two isolated incidents here that have occurred over the span of the last unfortunately last whatever three years let's just say three years three because, years yeah, yeah to to me two incidents don't form while it's unfortunate those things have occurred and probably you know weren't handled in the best way doesn't necessarily mean that we've established a pattern of behavior either yeah exactly. No, I, I think that's a very good point too. These, these really, it, it boils down to two incidents, and I don't think you can extrapolate a pattern of behavior or, or a, a pattern of, of how things are dealt with publicly by two incidents like this. Yes, from the publishing house. I'm not talking about James Frankel's behavior. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking <laughs> no, no, no. about. I'm talking about the publishing. Just to make a, ourselves a hundred percent clear, we're talking about the publishing house's behavior. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Good. That's what I meant. Uh, well, that's what I meant too. But you know, I just want to be. I mean, next thing you know, we're we're endo- we're endorsing sexual har- harassment. We're not. So yeah. not yeah. on any sort of level. And I, I mispronounced Mary Robinette Kowal's name wrong again. And I should probably apologize that for online. For, for those of you who don't know, this has actually been a huge issue. I don't think an episode goes by where I don't butcher someone's name. And it has to do with variation of pronunciation. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, and also just the way I would read stuff up up here. It's like I I grew up saying Stephen King because it was S T E anyway. It, it's not. I found out afterwards. It's Stephen King. Well, any anything else you want to hit on? No, I I think you you actually brought up a point that I hadn't that hadn't been in the back of my mind when I was you know, and I I think it's a good one. Um, of it being where as Irene said something publicly versus the um, with the James Frankel, it was something that was reported. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't something he had said said online. It wasn't something he had said publicly. But you brought up an interesting point. And you had said that if he had have come and if he had come out and said and made a public statement, then that might have changed things. Tor might have made a response. Yes. And I, I thought that was a really good point. So yeah, anyway. No, and yeah, I I was in 
kind of implying that by painting the situation that, you know, a convention in the situation there was a semi-private, semi, I, I wasn't there. So, you know, you've been at room parties or what have you. And if it happened in the confines of a room party and there were five people there, I'd argue that it was semi-private. If it happened yeah. in a, it happened during the Toastmaster ceremonies at the beginning in front of 300 or 400 people, I'd argue that's public. Public, yeah. Yeah. But I'm assuming through what all I've seen online that it was relatively private and so that's not something you generally would go out and make a public state statement about but if he if if James Frankel had made a public statement that may have required or forced Tor's hand to uh, depending on the statement that was made either yeah. contribute or complement that statement yeah or uh, refute the statement depending on the facts and and we're certainly respond, be given the opportunity to respond. And I'm sure at that point, the press might have, might have even gotten involved and would have asked her for, uh, for a, a statement. Yeah, yeah, for a statement or response. So all these these circumstances to me, like you had said, I think are just are extremely different. Because you have something where a statement was actively actively made, and yes, it might have been within a public venue, but we've talked about social media in the for, uh, or in a kind of private, personal venue, but any more when the privacy laws are finally catch up with social media, I think they're going to find that pretty much anything that social media is out in the public domain. Well, any, anything else you want to touch on, uh, additional to the tour? No, no, that that's okay. all I wanted to say about it. What about you? No, I think, I think I'm good. I think I was good last week. <laughs> I was good last week too, but, but I want to actually, but I think we should also thank the people who, who yes. uh, gave us feedback too, because that, that was awesome. And we're more yeah. than happy to talk about what people out there want us to talk about. Yeah, and I, you know, to that, I will speak about fee the feedback piece. I think that is awesome that we're hearing from listeners. And even if it's things that can are constructive from, you know, we're going to always be looking to improve the show. There's some things I think, you know, there are certain segment of the population that enjoy your and my chats. And then there yep. are others that just want to get right to the interview. So I know we're going to be making some changes. We did that to the uh, Mary Robinette Kowal interviews where we kind of time stamped the interviews and allowed uh, listeners to know when the interview exactly started if they wanted to get past your and my rambling. But uh, other other folks seem to enjoy it. So, you know, let us know. Send us, certainly continue to send us feedback. And we'll, uh, we'll respond in some way, shape, or form. So yeah. uh, definitely continue to do that. Well, with that, I think I'm going to tell everybody we're going to sign off and get us to more video games. So Yes. Yes. I'm waiting for my next woohoo on that. Woohoo! Video games! All right, take care, everybody. Bye, guys. Another thing I think that I really like about working where we work is it has always been a very open relationship between the developers and the people who play our games. And when we um, have the good fortune to be able to go to conventions or go places and talk with people, we can talk with them and find out what do you want. You know, we have our ideas of what we think will be fun and cool, but what are we not thinking about? And so we've had a lot of really fantastic interactions with people saying, well, you know, I'm like this. I would like to see this. You know, I, th I think... Patrick can correct me if I'm wrong, but the inclusion of Krem, a trans gentleman in Dragon Age Inquisition, came from an LGBTQ panel that we did at PAX Prime and talking to some folks there and getting some feedback and having people say, yeah, this is something we'd really like to see. So we thought, all right, how can we do that? 
And then we realized how very binary it is to make male and female characters. And so everybody got on board, you know, all the vast numbers of teams that we work with really got on board. How do we do this from a technical point of view and make it respectful and trying to make him as good a character as we can make him. And it was funny because it did it did take more work from every department. Yeah. Art had to had to ask, okay, so do we start from a female skeleton mesh or a male skeleton mesh? Okay, now what textures do we use on that? The female ones or the male ones? Okay, which, okay, voice processing. Okay, like every single one and every single group, to their credit, said, okay, yeah, this is a little bit harder, but you've let us know what we want to do and we're going to do it right. And every group put in extra time to make it something that we not only did, but, you know, we're really proud of how we did and can do more easily next time. Yeah, it wasn't perfect, but you've got to do your best at least once and then see how we can improve on it next time. Krem was one of the was one of the cool additions to Inquisition. And I remember when I was playing through, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was, it was one of those things. I remember when Krem came on and, you know, as, as a game player, you're not told, oh, this is going to be a trans character in the game. You're just sort of listening to him. And it's like, okay, this is interesting. I want to find out more about this character. And, and it was cool how you were sort of drawn through that. So one of the things, getting to that idea of, um, you know, characters, uh, game players who are able to um, make choices throughout the game and such is that, shameless admission, I play a lot of Dragon Age and Mass Effect. <laughs> I think my clock now on Inquisition is something like 160 hours. So, I, nice. you know, one of the differences that I noticed, and it was really cool between Dragon Age 1 and 2 and then Inquisition, is that the amount of narrative control and pacing control that's relinquished to the player is really quite incredible. While I was playing, I kept wondering what was the influence for that? And was it more of a, a narrative side choice or whether or not it was the narrative team trying to accommodate the gameplay? It was some of both. Inquisition was our first game on the Frostbite engine and something that it did really well was wide open spaces. So we were faced with the chance to say, oh, okay, great, we can actually have large wilderness areas again. Because going, you know, in Origin, we had some nice, good, good-sized places for you to explore. In Dragon Age 2, we didn't have as much explorable area. And so in Inquisition, we saw the chance to get back to it. And that actually worked really well with our narrative goal. Um, one of the things that we had seen was that people play our games for a lot of different reasons, but one of the one of the strongest areas, one of the areas where we differentiate ourselves because there are just so few other games that do this, is the party. You mentioned playing Uncharted. Uncharted has a fantastic story, and I love the characters. We let you explore with your choice of people, and that choice gives us a lot of limitations. There are a lot of things that are harder for us to do um, in terms of what kind of platforming we can do or how expensive things are to write, because we have to write assuming there are any variable number of followers there with you. And as long as we're paying that price, we decided, we might as well reap the benefits of that as well. And the benefits, what fans have called out, what, uh, what players have called out as something they really love, is our characters and the banter that goes on back and forth between them and the relationships between those characters. So what we decided was the wilderness areas for us were going to be these optional areas that the player could... Uh, spend a few minutes in if she wanted to or spend hours upon hours and if he wanted to and either option was going to be okay and it was 
just going to be there for the player to get more powerful if they wanted to find crafting materials, to explore if that was something that interests them as a player, and also to hear the followers talk to each other and not specifically about the plot at hand, just to hear Varric and Cassandra give each other grief, to hear Sarah and Bull tell dumb jokes, to hear everyone go back and forth because that's something that we've gotten praise for every time we've done it in our games. We had a lot of followers in this game. There's <laughs> a lot of dialogue. You touched on the romance. And, you know, that that's one of the things I love in, in the Dragon Age games and the Mass Effect teams is how it fits into the narratives. You know, and it, it really was when some of the most believable romances were thrown in, like Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, Neverwinter Nights. Those types of RPGs tried it. Mm -hmm. And they sort of, you know, they fed it into in a bit. But Dragon Age was kind of the game where everybody went, wait a minute, and Mass Effect where all of a sudden the romances really seemed real. And you guys have become quite famous for that. So did anybody at Bioware, when they started writing these romance lines, know that they were going to become such, uh, you know, where did those come from? And did they realize it was going to become such a, you know, a front runner of the games or, or such a draw of the games? I would say way back, probably no. I mean, like, when they're, they're <laughs> I think it was fun, but I don't know if anyone realized how popular they would become. And then that, again, is something that we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on. One interesting thing is... Were you going to talk about how many people do and don't? Oh, actually, well, no, you hit that. Okay. I, was, I was actually... <laughs> one thing, it's interesting on Jade. I think on Jade, they were starting to see it. Yes. Because we're always making one game just as another game comes out. Yeah. Which offers the tantalizing and sometimes terrifying chance to course correct. If, uh, you know, you're on, you're on team, you're on one team and your game comes out in a year and a half and another team is just about to ship the game and the game comes out and they go, oh my God, Bastila and Karth, I want to romance Bastila and Karth forever. And you're like, okay, well, it turns out Bastila and Karth appear to be popular. People seem to be glomming on to romances. I guess we should do some more <laughs> of them then. <laughs> Um, and obviously Jade was before my time, but uh, it is interesting to see how each game has let us look at not doing it better necessarily, but just trying to figure out how to how to make them more real or how to make them feel like relationships. And in some cases for us to walk the balance between, okay, are these in here because fans ask for them and some of the writers really like writing them or are they in here because they're actually advancing the overall story we're trying to tell and how can we make it you know ideally more of the latter yeah well and, and it is interesting i think another thing that has clicked another element of that mm. that has clicked is that that is a way to explore some of that um gender and sexuality identity that we mm -hmm. were talking about before you know because by its very definition who you're going to hook up with is a reflection <laughs> of that and so um again as we have more space and more more technical abilities, things that we can explore, um, we have more chances to do that. Fantasy fulfillment is a big part of what we do, right? People are paying money, there's a certain, right? And you say that and it comes with all kinds of connotations. And we spend a lot of time thinking about what that means. And you want to be a hero. You play these games as your, your shepherd, your hawk, your inquisitor. People invest a lot of themselves in that character. And you want that character to be cool. You know, we, we try and offer a spectrum, but we try to... Like, I wouldn't want to play a game where I was absolutely a jerk the entire time. Or I did something horrible, or I did something racist, or, you know, I just... I That is not fantasy fulfillment to me. 
So we have sort of a minimum level of assumed player awesomeness, if that's fair. Is that a fair way to say that? That was something that we looked at carefully when we were writing the player's interaction with Krem and the player's ability mm-hmm. to talk about Krem. This doesn't mean we were right. This is what we agreed upon. Yes. Was I said, okay, Krem is in here. There are going to be that 16-year-old kid who has never, to his knowledge, seen a trans person in real life and does not know how this works. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, my the decision was I will allow the Inquisitor to be clueless. I will not allow the Inquisitor to be deliberately hurtful. I let you have attitudes that were like, I don't understand. How does that work? And which, you know... A, when talking with uh, trans people who actually, you know, genderqueer people who looked at Krem before Krem went out and corrected some of the places where I made really dumb mistakes. You know, they said, yeah, that's totally fair that people will ask that. And yes, sometimes that, that question does get old. Sometimes, you know, sometimes some of these things do annoy us, but that's totally fair game. But what we wouldn't do is let the player go, it is dumb that Krem does this. Krem, you are stupid and weird and aberrant. Like, nope, we had absolutely no interest in letting the Inquisitor say that because that was just outside the realm of, as Karen said, the fantasy awesomeness. And there's so many different people who are playing these games too. We are trying to make it so someone who is transgender can feel like there's a character they identify with, but also someone who is not mean, but just, you know, just has no energy on it, but just doesn't understand and also have that be a way. I, I remember reading a comment on the forums and somebody saying, wow, so I, you know, I asked some questions about that. And then when Krem was talking, I felt sort of bad and a little embarrassed. And wow, am I glad I won't be that stupid to the first transgender person I actually ever meet. In real life. In real life, you know, and that was really cool, a neat experience to go, okay, yes. So that is a type of role playing, right? They got to role play that kind of experience and hopefully, you know, we can apply it to real life or expand that part of how they think about life a bit. A safe place to make the ignorant mistake that you would rather not make in real life. Yeah. Yeah. A little cultural introduction. Yeah. Because we've all done it. (laughs) Yeah. Mm, Yes, we have. All the time, even still. (laughs) Christy and I were chuckling earlier when we, when she was asking around that original question around the romance too, because I think you all know that when we, via social media started asking fans questions <laughs> immediately the responses we got back were around uh, romantic elements oh did was they it, ask w- questions th- about romance i'm i'm shocked oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah christy was there one around was there was there was one in particular around was it the krogan Krogans, yes, Krogans from yes. mass effect when will we have krogan romance <laughs> that was the question we got <laughs> yes. wow um, that- <laughs> That is one that might fall under the umbrella of where, you know, we are not to talk over much about the future, but I think at this point, we were never to say never. You know, we gave you a canary. And <laughs> there you go. That was pretty close. It's um, in a wiki somewhere, right, Karen? <laughs> so maybe maybe we can just say that we have heard that question and it has been recorded. <laughs> duly noted. It's duly noted. <laughs> Patrick, so you've got your standalone series, Rogues of the Republic, and um, I've been reading it and chatting about it on my um, uh, my weekly updates for Adventures in Sci-Fi, publishing uh, people who visit the website. What was the inspiration for the series, and what was the road for getting that published? And you know, was it in, was it influenced at all by your work on video games? That's a fantastic question. Um, 
like I was talking about earlier, I, you know, I hit that point of realizing that if I'm going to write something in my spare time, it's going to be something that I would want to read. It's going to be something that has a sense of fun to it. It's going to be something that is, you know, overall, ideally a positive experience because that's what I like reading. Added to that, I can't even remember what story, but I think I was reading an article on Strange Horizons, uh, which is a uh, science fiction website. And they were talking about the cliche of the magical Negro um, and how the, the use of people of color to be this mystical other whose only importance in the story is to guide the white protagonist on his or her journey to self-realization. And I completely agreed with the article, except that I kind of came at it, I think, from a different angle, or it made me think in a different direction that for me, the problem was not just that people of color were used in this way, but but that there were not enough lead roles for people of color to do something fun, to do something other than help the white protagonist around. So I took this and just wanted to say, okay, I'm going to go outside of my comfort zone, outside of the uh, the white dudes who were the protagonist of most of my, my novels and short stories up to that point. And I was going to write something with a woman of color and step outside, like I said, step outside my comfort zone and write something that had a little bit more diversity and a little bit more representation for different people in it. And also, which did that without becoming, for want of a better term, the after-school special, without becoming something that was about the diversity, that was just, nope, the diversity is in here, and it's not a thing. What I'm doing is a fantasy heist caper, because heist capers are fun, and fantasy is fun, and I'm just going to make it as diverse as I could. I just wanted it to be fun. Like I said, I don't have a background in feminist studies. I don't have a background in African-American studies. So I know that if I tried to write something incredibly deep, exploring the issues at a really, really deep level, I would absolutely fall flat on my face in a number of embarrassing ways. So my goal is to be an ally. And my goal is to be someone who can say, look, I'm putting a character in here. I'm going to have fun. It's not going to be about that. But if there's if there's a black woman who wants to read something fun and see herself in it, now she has a chance. I was just smiling as he was saying that thing because he loves fight scenes like he loves nothing else in the world. <laughs> so I was, I was thinking that, you know, takes the form of if everyone beating the snot out of each other is different colors. That's awesome. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. You switched publishers for your series at one point. Did you not? Yes, I actually started with um, a small Canadian press, Taiki, and then uh, switched over to 47 North. They did a reprint of The Palace Job. They published The Prophecy Con and will be putting out book three, The Paladin Caper, later this year. And just for uh, for listeners out there, we're going to have a bunch of giveaways for uh, the Prophecy Con and the Palace Job and Masked Empire as well. So we will be putting some uh, some notes uh, in later when this show goes on broadcast. So uh, so yeah, so definitely check out those. Um, no, it's interesting. I, I actually know Taiki as well. Um, I was in an anthology they did a while back. So I remember seeing your book popping up with them, with Margaret, Margaret Curlis. So, um, so yeah, so that was actually really cool to see that you got the start with, um, with Taiki and then, and then switched over to Amazon. So, um, so yeah, I, I noted that. With Locke, I need to know, is she going to steal a sword in book three? <laughs> and will Kale insult somebody's mother in a new language? If so, what language will that be? Wow. <laughs> okay, yes, actually, I think I do a new language. Yeah. 
the language itself might be a spoiler, but yes, uh, you may have noticed that I do enjoy my tropes. I find them fun. I really like the idea that Locke actually has a new sword every book because she just keeps stealing them because that is the level of realism I'm interested in. And Kale as the guy with absolutely no powers beyond well-timed insults of people's mothers somehow managing to survive, at least until the middle of the third book. We'll see. <laughs> oh, no. Um, when, when, when's book three coming out? I believe it's scheduled for holiday. I think they're going to try and see if they can get it earlier, because uh, the first two were both in the kind of the September-October time frame. But um, I was uh, somewhat behind on my deadlines because of the release of this small video game that we were working on uh, late last year. Small video game. Would, would, that, Little, would that be the Inquisition, the tiny one that you guys released? Well, Little, that little tiny game. Little art yeah. house. <laughs> Dragon Age Inquisition, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> words. Can I toss out one of my favorite statistics? Yes. That out between, and this is both with dialogue and non-dialogue, so all of the menus and movies and codex entries and journals and stuff. Um, Dragon Age Inquisition has close to a million words in it, <laughs> and my team, wow. I hope, has looked at all of them. <laughs> Wow. Just for a little comparison, War and Peace has 580-something thousand. Yeah, so we're about Wait, can I wow. it up? About 1.6 War and Pieces. Yeah. 587,287, says Google. Yeah. I think so, you just put in perspective the difference between prose narrative and the <laughs> transmedia. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. When we look at it, we got a, we a team of over eight or nine writers and a million words. So each of us basically wrote around 100,000 words. Probably. At and, least. And the codex entries, you guys did most of Yeah, those. the codex entries, the, you know, the dialogue, the everything. Yeah. That's incredible. Karen, Patrick, you guys have been more than generous with your time. So I know we have one final question for you in particular, and then we'll allow, if there's anything we've missed, certainly we'll allow you to add that. But we, we have a lot of aspiring content creators, not just writers, but content creators. And I've been really interested in hearing both of your uh, journey as we've been having this discussion and, you know, Patrick, in particular, you've been talking about even you've touched on this, this realization around writing something you would enjoy reading. But if each of you were to offer a piece of career advice for our listeners who are looking into getting in the game industry or just content creation, what would that be? Mine would be get a job or something that has consequences for failure, which is why I say job, in which you are required to produce content by a deadline. There are so many people who could create a ton of brilliant stuff if given all the time in the world, but there are times when we, you know, we get, hey, this wilderness area needs five new plots and they all have to be written by 5 p.m. today. And your job is to make something that ideally is, you know, memorable and fun and interesting and aspirational for the player and also can be done in the next two and a half hours. <laughs> Two by five. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. so so I, I think just learning to produce content on demand and be comfortable doing that would be mine. Mine kind of builds on that. I mean, because absolutely you have to be good at your craft. You have to be a good writer. You have to be a good cinematic designer. You have to be a good character artist. You need to have your chops. I, I mean, yes, absolutely you need to be good at what you do. But unless you are independently developing a game by yourself, you're going to be working with a team of people. And so being able to both give and receive feedback effectively is crucial. 
Patrick has mentioned uh, that he was he was part of Clarion West, and I think one of the most valuable things he got out of it, and I say that because he has kind of shared this with some of us, is the Clarion critiquing method. So how to give valuable, concise feedback. You know, learning how to do that is important. Learning how to receive that is as important. So I tell people, you know, for writers particularly, find writing groups, be in writing groups, and ask for feedback. Ask for actionable feedback. Yes. And practice implementing one thing that you think is the stupidest idea you have ever heard just to do it. Because Mm. someday your boss is going to say, hey, so this, and you're going to go, but no, that is the (laughs) dumbest thing ever. And they're going to say, do you want to get paid? And you would say, yes, so I'd love to get paid. So, um... (laughs) I think I shared this. You you just explained my job, which is ghostwrite <laughs> for executives. That was on Mass Effect, <laughs> Mass Effect 2. Oh, yeah, I know. I started getting off. Um, do you guys remember the emails that you got in Mass Effect 2? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. So Preston, Preston Watomniak, lead designer, says, hey, we need to use the terminal for something other than just your weapons upgrade and the tutorial videos and all that. So Patrick, I need you to write some emails that the player will get. We were working pretty hard to get everything done. There was not a lot of time. I thought that was the dumbest idea ever. (laughs) I looked at him and I said, really? We're making a game where I can biotically charge people and then shoot them with a shotgun and then lift them into the air and then headbutt them? And you think people are going to take time to read emails? Like, <laughs> really? But again, like like Karen said, I was like, okay, fine. I will, I'm kind of snippy about it, but... Well, he didn't actually say all that to press in my recollection. That was more like, grumbling on the deer back. I kind of, yeah, grumpily went back to my desk and went, fine, stupid emails. It was stupid emails. I guess I'm putting some emails in. And, and then we and, joked about it like you do. Yes, and then sure enough, <laughs> sure enough, the game ships and people look at it. People, oh my God, I love that this person sent me an email. That was so meaningful. And I, so in retrospect, respect i was completely wrong i preston was right and i was wrong and it is good that we work in a team environment and that we learn to listen to other people i used to go to the terminal and check out my emails and see what was happening and and it was fun no you're making me more wrong And to be fair, I mean, this is sort of like black and white examples, but, you know, when you're working on a mission, it's a writer and later on an editor, but it's the level designer and the cinematic designer. At least this is Bioware, you know, where there's a lot of people and artists. And so it's a sometimes called pod of people that's working together on one mission. And you're all, you've all got the same goal in mind, but you've all got things that you can offer. And sometimes you have a fast, fantastic idea, but then the cinematic designer has a better idea and you need to be able to let go of the fantastic idea you had because hers is better. And so um, just that kind of give and take and really focusing on what's, you know, the player experience, what's going to be good for the game rather than, oh, but this was the best idea I ever had, um, I think is one of the most difficult things to do. But when that mission comes out the other side and you're playing it and it's kind of cool, it's one of the it's the most fulfilling part of, of development. So it's it's worth working on. Absolutely. Well, I have to tell you all that this collaboration, since we've learned about collaboration and teamwork in this discussion, has been most excellent and we've truly enjoyed it. We have truly enjoyed having you guys on the show. Absolutely. So thank you. Yes, thank you for taking the time. It's really been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for including us amongst your illustrious (laughs) authors and people that you've interviewed. We're we're in quite honored company. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>